What is the U.S. Space Force and what is the strategy they are going to execute? This is one of many questions Americans have as a new service stands up. Hi, I'm your host, Bill Wolf, the president and founder of the Space Force Association. On this edition of A Space Pro, I interviewed Josh Carlson, who recently self-published Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory, and a New Space Strategy. A Space Pro podcast covers topics from military, industry, civil, and education sectors. To gain a better understanding of what the U.S. Space Force is all about and why it is a critical component to our national security, please go to www.ussfa.org and sign up for updates on all topics related to our newest military service. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Air Force, Space Force, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government. Listen in to part one of a two-part interview as we gain the insights from a student of space power strategy and the recommendations he has for the United States as we continue to evolve our space superiority capabilities. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of A Space Pro, the official podcast of the Space Force Association. Today, we are honored to have with us Josh Carlson, who recently published a book called Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory, and a New Space Strategy. Josh, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Bill. I'm very happy to be on here. Before we get started, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about your background and how you got to the place where you decided, hey, you know what, I need to write a book on this? Sure, Bill. Um, so my background, um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I joined the Army in 2005, um, served in the California National Guard, deployed uh, in support of Operation Inherent Resolve uh, just about two years ago. Um, and then while I was doing that, concurrently in 2009, I joined the Air Force as a civilian. And so I always like to, you know, tell people I'm in the Army and the Air Force and, and they give me a, a weird look and I have to, of course, explain how that's possible. Um, in the Air Force, I, I've been working at Space and Missile Systems Center in Los Angeles since 2009. Um, I've worked in every element of the, the space acquisitions infrastructure there. I've worked from launch, getting the, the satellites into orbit. I've worked in range and network, which is the, the, the systems that launch and also talk to the satellites in orbit. I've worked on satellite spos that send the satellite, that are the ones that build the satellites going to orbit. And um, I've also worked on the, uh, the staff there to be able to support um, all of the programs as they need um, specialty assistance. Um, it's really been a pleasure um, getting, to, getting to work at such a, an area, a space and missile system center. Um, deploying, I, I came back and, um, and uh, at SMC, the Air Force uh, saw something in me, wanted to, to send me to school. And so they sent me to Air Command and Staff College to uh, get a, a degree there in residence. Um, so I got back from the deployment, was home about three months, sold our house, and uh, we moved to uh, Alabama for a year. While I was at Air Command and Staff College, uh, I signed up for Dr. Brent Zarnick's um, uh, Space Horizons Research Task Force. It's a, it's a dedicated three-quarter elective that you can take while you're at Air Command and Staff. And it is, it's a deep dive into the background of the theory, 
um, the, the, the hard presence of items in space and attempts to tie it all together and come up with a, with a thesis. Uh, and so as I was looking at it, I, I noticed I'd never really seen a comparison between China and America in space. And uh, Dr. Brent Zarnick was, was very gracious in, in assisting and he uh, put me in contact with uh, Namrata Goswami. She's a, a specialist on uh, Chinese both uh, space theory and space strategy. And so I was able to have a, a two hour interview with her, which was, which was a real treat. And she was the one that really shared uh, what a lot of the Chinese space theory is and pointed me to her congressional testimony where she talks about the strategy and the milestones that China has openly stated that they are planning on embarking on. Um, as I came to the end of my thesis, Dr. Brent Zarnick and uh, Dr. Michael Coyote Smith, along with others, um, in reading the thesis, they looked at it and said, I, I think you need to publish this. And so I took the thesis and built it out. Um, I guess maybe for good or for bad, you know, we've had a lot of time at home uh, these last couple of months. And so uh, on my own time, I, I went off and uh, did additional research and built the, built the book up to uh, where it is now. And that has really been, uh, that has really been an exceptional experience, being able to, to work with so many people and come into contact with so many people that, I mean, I read their, I read their articles like, uh, Dr. Pete Gerritsen or, or uh, retired general, um, Stephen Quast. Um, I read his book, Everett Dolman, he works at, at uh, Air Command and Staff. Um, all of these people, I'd read their work, I'd seen their um, articles or books, and now here I was working with them, and they were giving me feedback on my book, and, and they were excited about being able to get it out. And so it, it really is, it, it's a huge chance to say thank you to all of them. I, I do in the start of the book as well. Um, other people additionally contributed, but, but I mean, these were the, the primary ones. And um, yeah, I, I, really, I really can't say enough about both the chance to do this that the Air Force afforded me and uh, the opportunity to work with the people that I have. Thank you for that in-depth background. I appreciate it. That's a great story and uh, a great summary of what motivated you to complete the book and write the book? Uh, what are you doing now in Texas? So right now I work for a software factory called Level Up. It's one of the couple that the Air Force has stood up recently to attempt to be more agile in our acquisitions. Uh, I mean, to give, it, to give some perspective, um, one of the programs I worked on at Space and Missile Systems Center was the um, space-based infrared surveillance satellites, SIBRS. Uh, it was roughly 10 years between when the initial satellite was um, approved and when it was actually on orbit. Um, that They have improved it significantly, but the teething for that particular system, and it gives you some idea of how long the acquisitions were taking back in the uh, early to uh, mid-2010, right, 2013. Um, the software factories work significantly faster. We we are in the process of getting fully accredited to engage in the software acquisition pathway, which is a three month cycle. We receive requirements from, from outside um, organizations and decompose those into mission threads. That's our, um, our systems engineering shop. Breaks them into mission threads down into apps that we can generate in a couple of months. 
and then we we generate those apps on a three month cycle, and so it, it's much more responsive to uh, to customer needs. Great, thank you for that summary, and that's interesting. I, I'm following Level Up as well. It's very interesting what's going on there, and as you know, there's a lot of discussion in the acquisition community on how we streamline our current acquisition processes, but instead of getting into that topic, which I'm sure we could spend just an hour talking about your experiences with SMC and what your observations are concerning that organization and how they can better streamline their existing processes. But what I'd really like to talk about is your book, Space Power Ascendant, Space Development Theory and a New Space Strategy. In that book, you present your space development theory. Can you summarize the importance of of the vision, theory, and strategy that you describe in your book and how they, how those complement each other? Well, yes, Bill, thank you. Um, so Space Power Ascendant looks at history in, in the macro sense. It looks at the current situation, but there's echoes to a past time in, in everything that we're talking about. Space Power and Sea Power um, are, are very similar in a lot of their elements, especially the importance for uh, projection of national power beyond the borders of the nation into the the deep blue sea that's beyond it to the far shore to be able to trade um, commit uh, diplomacy information all sorts of things that you can get only by being present far beyond where um, land forces would be able to take you uh, back around um, 1492 there was Christopher Columbus with the Nina de Pinta de Santa Maria he is the figurehead for the, 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 the movement of Europe across the Atlantic to the, at that, from their perspective, the New World, uh, the Americas. Um, that projection enabled all of the European, uh, the various European powers, which up to that point had been not particularly um, ascendant in, in the region. I mean, they were under siege from other outside powers. Uh, particularly from Africa and the Middle East. And so they were unable to, and a lot of them were unable to protect their shores. The Barbary pirates, for instance, were known to raid the, the south coast of Europe simply because they could not protect themselves sufficiently. Um, the projection across the Atlantic and the subsequent um, expansion and then exploitation of those resources and all of the national capability that that garnered um, really set Europe up for the ascendancy that they experienced largely until uh, somewhere between 1918 and 1945 after they, uh, of course, engaged in two major world wars, decimated um, um, all of the populations of Europe, the infrastructure, uh, everything. And at that point, um, that was, was largely what led America to the preeminent place that we are now as, as Europe um, largely um, due to infighting and other issues, um, we're not able to maintain that position. However, what most people don't know is at the same time, right around the 1400s, the Chinese actually had a very significant uh, fleet. I think I've seen numbers into the thousands of ships that they possessed. They were larger, at least allegedly, than the European ships at the time, much more complex much more capable. Um, some of the reports I've read, they, they say that there are still Chinese uh, looking settlements on the eastern coast of Africa because the Chinese were reaching out that far. 
Um, however, right around the same time that Columbus was going across the Atlantic, uh, the Chinese ended up burning their fleet due to the, uh, once again, according to the, the histories we have to read at the time, due to the elites feeling threatened with the um, economic destabilizing influence, they were not able to keep the, um, the rigidly structured society that they, they kind of wanted. And so um, they, as the response, they burned the ships and let them rot in harbor. And China turned inward for about 300 years, 200 years, um, until European powers, which at this point had begun to expand and exploit even beyond Americas into, the, uh, into India, and now they reached into China. And China suffered what they consider still to be their great humiliation at the hands of European powers uh, through the Opium Wars and many other instances through World War I into World War II. Uh, most people don't remember that Nanking and all sorts of other things were happening in the 1930s when Japan, who had seen what the European powers engaged in, turned to their own uh, expansion and exploitation. They marched into, in a hostile sense, and they marched into China. Um, and there was a massive civil war there for about 10 or 15 years. Finally, um, China... Uh, the Communist Party of China through the, um, with assistance, of course, from the Flying Tigers, who they still venerate, uh, the, the American uh, volunteer group, um, expelled the Japanese from China. And the Chinese have said about making sure that they have, they have learned their lesson from history. They will never repeat that mistake as long as the current government and their current um, impetus is continued in the national, than the national theater. They, they are not planning on burning their ships again. They want to be the ones this time that expand and exploit. Based on that, that leads into, that's the, the vision, that's the, the background that all of this is set against. Um, there has not been an expansion of the size and the importance that we are discussing since 1492 or thereabouts. Um, the, the massive multiplication of national capabilities through, in this, time, in this uh, um, example, space resources. And so the phases of space development walks through a logical progression from one phase to the next, each one adding more capability to the economic uh, and national power. Uh, and some of it will augment military, but it's, it's the national economic and uh, commercial capabilities that really is what um, the phases of space development are built around. And so the first phase is exploration, and that is simply what is there and how can I use it? And so the entry criteria for this phase is that you're able to observe, map, and evaluate what is in the domain. And that means operating the, in the domain to discover um, particularities about that domain and also attempting to observe or map any resource nodes or strategic locations, key terrain, either from a military or a commercial sense. Um, Panama, for instance, would be one of those, an example in the naval domain. Um, uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan wrote that the Panama would be a great spot to put a canal so that you can speed commerce and military capabilities moving between the oceans. Obviously, we did that. And that, has, that radically increased the commercial benefit because ships didn't have to make that long port around um, South America. 
And additionally, for instance, in World War II, we were able to move our fleets back and forth between the Atlantic and Pacific much more quickly because they didn't have to go once again all the way around South America. Um, the exit for exploration is you have physical presence and permanent facilities in the location and you are making it easier to move more forces into the domain, whether that is, when I say forces, either military, social, or uh, econo mostly economic, which is what you are looking for. The second phase is expansion. And when you enter this phase, as you have that permanent presence and you are improving your capability to sustain that presence, you're establishing logistics nodes, you're putting in communications posts, um, you're ensuring that you're starting to establish the, that facilities and those infrastructures so that you can lead into the next phase. Your job is to make it secure enough that commercial industry finds it beneficial enough to move them, their own capabilities in there and begin to draw economic benefit from that area. Um, and that is the, and the, um, it is a, a exertion of national capability to expand in this way. Uh, the, the delineation between expansion and exploitation, which is the third phase, is when the, the uh, exertion and the uh, money that is needing to be expended to uh, maintain this expansion, this permanent presence, is offset by the uh, economic benefit that is being gained by the country. And so as expansion now moves into exploitation, the commercial markets hit full steam and you are now, it is a net gain to possess this area, these nodes, whatever it is. Uh, additionally, during this point, you are having increased gathering, production and distribution nodes. Um, if there are new resources or new goods being produced, uh, the national uh, politic is attempting to find markets for these so that you can gain as much economic benefit from this area as possible. And then the final phase is a conditional phase. And so exclusion is the capability of the nation to project sufficient force, either offensive or defensive, to keep a hostile actor out of a particular area that is, that is uh, contested. So for instance, um, a gold mine, as an example, a gold mine that is between two countries, both countries are most likely, if it is a very valuable mine, they might attempt to exclude the opposite nation from that area, which uh, through projecting, projecting resources, whether that, if it's on uh, earth, you might have air, ground, some form of naval, depending on where this thing is located. Um, the phase of exclusion is exited when one or the other is able to control it sufficiently that the other one does not have access and exploitation can continue. Um, and then exploitation is the phase that nations generally want to stay in. They don't, exclusion and expansion are both um, exertion phases. They are phases that drain the national coffers. Generally, they are a net loss, but they are for the purpose of being able to enjoy that exploitation phase, which is a net gain for the uh, national economic benefit. The importance of the phases of space development is that it helps to draw a distinction between space power, which is the military elements of space and all of the um, military centric um, satellites capabilities that the national um, military wing, the DIME, so the uh, military uh, instrument of national power wields. And then 
astronautics, which the book proposes as the term for the economic, commercial, social elements of space is basically everything else. Um, this is recognized in all other domains. Um, the, you obviously have the army and you have commerce on land. In the sea, you have sea power and maritime. And in air, you have air power and aviation. It is recognized in all other domains. And part of my research suggests that, that space needs to also recognize this same distinction between the military and economic capabilities. That helps make discussing the phases of space development much easier so that you can very clearly say space power is doing this and then the astronautics is, is doing this. And space power supports astronautics and astronautics gives a purpose to space power. All of this drives the strategy. And this is what uh, in, the, in the book, I look at the Chinese space strategy, which recognizes a lot of these and the American space strategy, um, which has elements of these, but looking at it, there is, there is two looks that we have. The first one is, um, does not really recognize these in America and just maintains the current capabilities. Um, brown water theory, which we'll, we'll get into later. And then the second look goes much more into blue water thinking, which we will also talk about later. And, and the second one is, is successful um, in challenging the current established Chinese strategy, which is proclaimed in their, their various um, official uh, declarations. That's a great, great summary and a, a great way to transition into the topics you've already just briefly mentioned, which is the difference between blue water and brown water school for space power. So can, can we, would you mind just talking a little bit about that? Of course. Uh, so this, so brown water or um, also called uh, military space, or there's, there's a number of terms. The, the terms brown water and blue water come from naval theory uh, as far as fleets. Sometimes you'll hear a nation has a brown water fleet. And, and the, the image that um, this is meant to evoke is as the water um, crashes onto the shore, it kicks up the dirt and makes the water brown. And so brown water is a generally a, a defensive fleet. It is pretty much exclusively military focused. Uh, on protecting the nation's shores. Um, and it, it, there's, it cannot project beyond roughly the continental shelf, more or less. Um, that's, that's the term brown water. Blue water, from the naval sense, is being able to project out beyond the, the shelf and to ultimately be able to circumnavigate, na circumnavigate the globe, uh, project that national power through right now the preeminent uh, platform for that is an aircraft carrier. It used to be battleships or, or some form of dreadnought. Um, the, the, the massive capabilities that establishes national power on the far side of the sea, being able to project through the ocean to the, others, to the opposite shore. That's blue water. In space theory context, brown water generally is focused on the space littorals, the, um, the shore, as it were, of our celestial island which is the orbits, roughly out to the geosynchronous orbit. There's, um, there's a low Earth orbit, um, highly elliptical orbit, and uh, geosynchronous orbit are the three major ones. There's a couple of odd cats and dogs in there as well. 
Um, but basically it looks at just the satellites maintaining the capabilities we have now in orbit, um, the military uses of space power, and, and that's it. The, it, it's, it, it's great at attempting to maintain what is, and it also recognizes that, we are, that a lot of our space systems in orbit are genuinely under threat just this week. Uh, the Space Force released the report discussing uh, the Russian test of the co-orbital ASAP. Uh, that, that is a real threat, uh, and, and that's, that's, not to, that's not to denigrate any of the threats that our, our current systems in orbit are experiencing. Uh, Brownwater's credo, I, I, heard it re I heard it recently, and unfortunately I, I don't remember the source, but the, the sentence was, if it, doesn't if it doesn't matter to the warfighter, it doesn't matter to us, speaking of, of space capabilities. That is, that is the credo of, of brown water thinking. Brown water thinking shapes how we think about space, how we discuss it, um, sometimes even calling it, for instance, the ultimate high ground. Calling it the ultimate high ground still puts space and the orbits in the context of terrestrial concerns. You're looking up and it is the ultimate high ground. Blue water thinking, um, in contrast to all of this, definitely gives some consideration to the orbits and to the military aspects, but it is more than that. It looks at the economic, it looks at the informational, um, the diplomatic, it looks at all the other elements of the dime as well and how they are influenced and used in space, in particular the economic. It is, it is very heavily focused on the economic, and it is focused beyond Earth's orbits out into the cis-lunar, lunar, beyond. Um, lunar being the first major stepping stone. Uh, as, as you get into space development, the first major pit stop, so to speak, um, needs to be the moon. The moon is, has resources, in particular water on the south and north poles, and at the peaks of eternal light, which at the south and north poles, where there is uh, constant solar energy being projected, being able to capture that and then refine the water there to use for uh, propellant and other things to refuel things once they are out of Earth's gravity well is the first step to getting far beyond simply cislunar, but I, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, blue water thinking looks at, the, at, the, at space as an ocean. I, would, I personally think of it as the silent sea. I think that space is much more like an ocean and looking at it that way, now the planets are islands and we are attempting to navigate our way to those to do exactly the exploration, expansion and exploitation that I already discussed. Going there to find out what resource nodes are there. What is the key terrain on these planets? Um, what is the space key terrain? For instance, Lagrange points, which are uh, points of, of essentially um, stable gravity in space between two bodies that have a gravitational pull. Um, these are the elements of discovering about the space domain and then being able to not just know about them, but expand to them, put resources there, project force there to hold them if an enemy attempts to, to ex exclude you from it, and then ultimately to turn those into economic benefit through the exploitation phase. Looking at it, that is, that is the, the big picture of what brown water and blue water talk about. Thank you for listening to this edition of A Space Pro, where I interviewed Josh Carlson, who recently self-published Space Power Ascended, Space Development Theory and a New Space Strategy. This was part one of a two-part interview. Please listen into part two to gain the insights from a student of Space Power Strategy 
and the recommendations he has for the United States as we continue to evolve our space superiority capabilities. The views and opinions expressed or implied in this podcast should not be construed as carrying the official sanction of the Department of Defense, Air Force, Space Force, or other agencies or departments of the U.S. government.